0: even now it's time to wake up are you ready this is the lord's declaration god is ready god is ready god is ready turn to me with all your heart with fasting with weeping and with
1: mourning are you desperate god is ready to change your life return to the lord your god he wants to fill your life with hope for he is gracious you need hope we live in a society driven by power are you cold he is compassionate driven to succeed are you burned out driven to be famous are you angry driven to be in control, are you ready? But for all the promises made, for all the good intentions, the world fails us. Someone, a friend, a loved one, a neighbor, a stranger, someone comes along and pulls the plug, turns out the lights. Have you been let down? He is rich in faithful love. Are you ready for life change? And there we are, left in the darkness once again. Are you ready to break this endless feudal circle? Defeated, alone, why do we do this to ourselves?
0: If my people who are called by my name the power of all power Will humble themselves It is only a prayer away If they will pray and seek
1: my face Boldly and confidently enter into the fullness of God Do you want to be heard Without God's power we do not have a hope If
0: they will turn from their evil ways then I will hear
1: them from heaven. Through prayer, through fasting, prayer and fasting, we can know the power of God.
0: For he is gracious, he is compassionate, he is rich in faithful love.
1: Do you want to know this power? God can do more in a moment, in a moment, in a moment, than you can do
0: in a lifetime for nothing is impossible with God. Are you ready? You can take part and make the difference. This can only come about through prayer and fasting. Are you ready? He wants to do something powerful and supernatural in your life. My eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to the prayers of this place. It's time to wake up.
1: Are you ready?
2: Welcome everybody to the second part in the Build Your Kingdom campaign. Uh, So happy to see so many uh, new faces here today joining us for the first time. We welcome you with open arms. You're coming at a fun time because we're in the middle of a church-wide campaign called Build Your Kingdom, which we started last week. And what we talked about last week, our goal in this campaign is to build the kingdom of God both here in Arlington specifically, but really all over the world, whichever part of the world you may be coming from here today or you watching this online or, or recording later on, our goal is really to expand God's kingdom through whatever means God has asked us to do that. And we agreed in the very beginning last week that as members of the kingdom of God, we have two roles. Our primary role is to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, a law abiding citizen who is firmly planted in the kingdom of God. But our role after being a citizen is to be an ambassador to the kingdom of God. And that's really what we're focusing on here in this series is how we can expand God's kingdom as an ambassador to that kingdom. And we can build that kingdom wherever it is that we are. The verse that we looked at last week that we feel God is calling us specifically here um, at STSA is Exodus 25 verse 8. It said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. We agreed last week that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom, okay? It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom, which he said the kingdom of God is within you. But that spiritual kingdom is manifest in physical things. It's a spiritual kingdom, which is real, okay? It's unseen but real, but it's manifest in physical things. Easiest way to look at this is you look at our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The same way he took flesh, he was incarnate, he took a body that he didn't need to take a body, like he didn't need the body in order to, to, to exist, All right, but he took a body because we needed him to take that body so we could relate to him. In the same way, some people thought I said, or maybe misunderstood or misheard or something like that, and said that if we don't have this building, God cannot dwell here in Arlington, Absolutely not. God already dwells here among us, and God is inside all of us. The kingdom of heaven is within us. We're not saying that God needs a building to dwell here. We're saying that we need a building so that we can have a place where we can gather around the presence of the Lord, and it's for our sake because God, who is spirit, when he communicates with flesh and blood, uses flesh and blood. And when he communicates with humans, he didn't come as a robot or as a giant or as a ruler, he came as a baby. Why? Because we know babies. We, this makes sense to us. We can relate to having human beings as babies. And it's the same thing when it comes to the sanctuary. When God said in the beginning, there's a garden. Me and you were going to live in that garden. When God said, make me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, so that as you guys move, I can be moving with you. When God eventually said, build me a fixed place, a temple, a place that's dedicated just to me. It wasn't because he needed it is because we as human beings needed it to understand God's dwelling and presence amongst us. And the church of the New Testament is no different. Actually, in the New Testament, when Jesus had already established this principle of God likes tabernacles, and God likes temples, and God likes places to dwell among the people, so that even when they were removed from the temple... When they got kicked out of Jerusalem, they built synagogues, little places where they could gather to worship. When this was established, God gave us the next step in the revelation of this place. And he says this in John 14, verse 2 and 3. He says now, himself speaking, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You see, he's now speaking about the kingdom of heaven, which is a spiritual kingdom, but he's using earthly terminology. I'm going to prepare a place for you. On this earth, it was you prepare a place for me. But in the kingdom, who's the builder? God says, I am preparing a place for you. Whether it's the tabernacle, whether it's the temple, whether it's the church, all of these are types or foreshadowings of the kingdom of God. And what we build here on earth as a place for us to dwell with God, God is building a place in heaven that we can dwell with him when we get there one day. And that's, and that's really the story of this campaign. As I mentioned a little bit last week, that we found a building for sale. When we were not looking for a building for sale, we were not in any way even considering it. We were very content where we are right here. We're renters. You know what I mean? The chairs are set up for us every week. The bathrooms are cleaned by somebody else. Like we were living a good life. But then God put this building in front of us, and we resisted, and we resisted, and we resisted. But then eventually God made it very clear that this is timing is from him, and this place is from him, and God wants us to build a sanctuary. Not because he wants a building, but because he wants his kingdom to expand here in Arlington, and he wants it to expand wherever it is that you're from. That's why our response to God's call to the building is this, 1 Chronicles 22:19. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Therefore arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy articles of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. God called us and we his people will arise and build. And you notice the connection between worshiping God, set your heart and your soul to seek him and having a place dedicated to him, a sanctuary or a building. Last week, for those who were here, we said we're going to look at people in the Bible who have built the kingdom of God, and built a physical place to represent the spiritual kingdom of God. Last week, we looked at our first character in the Bible. Who did we look at last week? Oh, come on. Who did we look at last week? Ezra. All right. Do I need to repeat what I said last week about Ezra? I need to go over the whole story again? Ezra was the guy who, when they got kicked out of Jerusalem, all right, and they were captive in Babylon, he led the first group of people to go back, and say, now we need to rebuild this temple, and he led a group of people, and all we talked about last week was about how God acted, do you remember how God started the process of the rebuilding of the temple, God did a great act, what did God do, there was a king, and his name, anyone know the name of the king, begins with a C, and then a Y, rhymes with iris, Cyrus, very good. Y'all are paying attention, okay? A king named Cyrus who was pagan, who didn't care nothing about Jerusalem, didn't care nothing about the people of God, woke up one morning with a great idea. I'm going to send all the Jews who were slaves in his land back to rebuild his temple. Where did this come from? No idea. Didn't make any sense, but this is how God acted. And God takes the initiative just like he did with us. He put it in our lap. And then when God acted with initiative, the people responded in two ways. Y'all remember? People responded swiftly and courageously. That's okay. God will encourage me. Okay, in another way. It's okay. The other one encouraged me, that's okay. The people responded swiftly. They took immediate action. The king said, we're going to go rebuild this temple. So the people said, we'll go. And several people stood up and said, we'll go. And we said that was courageous because it was a big, it was a lot of risk in doing that. And it took a lot of courage for them to do it. That was Ezra chapter one, Ezra two, which we did not read, but I told you, and hopefully you read it at home. Ezra two is the most boring slash most important chapter in the Bible. The most boring slash most important because all Ezra two is, is a chapter that says, so-and-so answered the call and went to rebuild and so-and-so and his family and so-and-so and his family. And it's like 70 verses, all just naming different names that none of us can pronounce. But for all of history and for all of eternity, those names are recorded as the people who acted swiftly and courageously to rebuild God's temple. Somebody gave me a great idea that we are going to do here. We are going to do Ezra chapter two. I loved the idea when someone suggested it to me. We're going to do all the people who donate and contribute to building God's kingdom here. We're going to record those names in a book. We're going to record those names. We're not going to publish it online or we're not doing anything like that. Record it in a book and we're going to put it under the altar in the church. And every time we pray in that church, those names will be there for prayer. And then, after all of us are dead and long gone, after our grandkids are the ones who now have kids, they're going to open up that book and they say, what's the story of this church in Arlington? They're going to open up and they're going to read the most boring, most important book in the entire place. And we're going to tell them that no matter how, because that's what Ezra 2 is, it's very boring, sit down and read it. Are we going to make them sit down and read it? Or we should make them read it every Sunday? Okay, maybe not every Sunday, but once a year. Okay, they're going to read it, and they're going to say, This church is here today because so and so, back in 2014, him and his family, and they acted swiftly and courageously. And so and so, and so and so, and so and so. -so." For generations to come to see the story. Now, today, that was all background because y'all didn't pay attention last week. (laughs) Okay, now, today, we're going to take the next step. Last week was the call. And hopefully by this week, everyone said, I answer the call. I'm in, I'm ready to build. Now the question is, what do we do next? God says, build a temple. What do we do? Look for a hammer, grab my tool belt, go YouTube building stuff. What's the next step that a kingdom builder takes after answering the call when God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. For that, we're gonna go to the next book in the Bible. And the next book in the Bible is the book of Nehemiah, all right? I have a little timeline here, historical timeline. If you go back to the original, the original, when the Bible was written, way, way, way back in the day, Ezra and Nehemiah come back to back in our Bible. But in the original Bible, they were one book. Because it's really one story with like three segments. And the story starts in Ezra when the people start to go back and rebuild the temple. That that happens in the year 537 after... So in 586, they got kicked out of Jerusalem, and they're living here in Babylon. In 537, these are approximate numbers. In 537, 50 years later, they come back to rebuild, and they make good progress. But then, a few years later, after Cyrus is gone, another king comes in, and he says, stop this process immediately. Stop this project immediately. So they all had to go back and stop building. And then eventually, a few years later, in 458, they say, the king says, okay, now you can go back and resume the work. So they go back and resume. The first time in Ezra 1, it's led by a guy with a cool name. His name is Zerubbabel. Say that. Say Zerubbabel. How many bees in Zerubbabel? Many. Okay. Zerubbabel leads the first charge, and then they get shut down. They all have to go back. The second charge is led by a guy named Ezra. And Ezra finishes the temple, and it's complete. But then the problem is, before they're able to complete things, they get shut down again. And the place is built but it's missing walls around the city. The temple is built, but the city has no walls. And you say, who cares about walls? Can you have a temple? And can you have a dwelling place for God with no walls? Do y'all know what no walls means? If you ever gone to like a third world country, you understand what walls means. Like here, you don't have walls. Like there's no fence between me and my neighbor, but we have property lines and whatever it may be, and we respect each other's boundaries. If you go, I've been on m- many mission trips to Africa. There's no such thing as boundary lines and respect whatever. If I'm standing here, this is my piece of property. And if, and if there's nothing stopping me from going there, I'm going to stand right there. And you can do whatever you want. I can, I can do whatever I want because it's pretty much every man for himself. So in Africa, what you do is you buy a piece of land. The first thing you do, you have to build walls. And what they do is they build high walls but then people can jump over the walls. So y'all remember, if you ever seen it, what they put on top of the walls, in Africa at least, glass, okay? They put like this glue on top of the wall. So the wall will be like this high, and I'd be like, what's the big deal? Anyone can just push themselves up over. And someone was like, go ahead and give it a try. But you can't, because what they do is they put glue, and then they smash bottles of glass, and it's all shards of glass. So you can try if you'd like, but you're not gonna make it, okay? It's an old school version of barbed wire, is basically what it is. But the bottom line is, if you don't have walls, you're defenseless. You can, you can do whatever you want and you build a nice church. No wall? I come and I steal everything out of the church while you're asleep. So a city without walls is a city that you cannot inhabit. And that's the way the, 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 the city of Jerusalem was when Zerubbabel finished and then Ezra finished and then when Nehemiah shows up in the year 445 B.C. We'll pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to kind of go through some of the details quickly to get to our lesson here for today. It came to pass... In the month of Chislev, in the 20th as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Han and I, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. Nehemiah is living in another city in a place called Shushan. and while he's there, a friend of his, Han and I, was there in, in Jerusalem at the time with Ezra and his crew, and he comes back and he says, "What's the status over there? How are the people doing?" And they said to me, this is the saddest report. The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. What's the report that he gets? Thumbs up? Thumbs down. Thumbs down on two levels. Physically, the walls are down, the, the place is in disarray. But what else? What else is down? Their spirits are down. They're discouraged. Why? You know why. Because God, you got this temple, and you built this, and you got me this far, and then God, you leave us now? Like, what was the point of all that we did if we don't have, if we don't have walls? Like, God, you let us down, not having the walls where they were saying, like, God abandoned us himself, and God doesn't care. The people were discouraged at this state. Nehemiah responds in verse 4. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. How does a kingdom builder respond when the call to build is given from God? When God says, I need this done for my house. How does a kingdom builder respond? What's the first thing a kingdom builder does? Nehemiah did four things, but it's really one thing, but he did four things. What are the four things? He mourned. he sat down, but we won't count sitting down, okay? He mourned. I'm sorry, he wept. He mourned. He fasted. He prayed. He wept. He mourned. He fasted. He prayed. How long did he weep, mourn, fast, and pray for? How long does the Bible say? Many days. Y'all want to know how long many days is? How long is many days? Without going into detail, verse 1 that we read in the beginning said, this story starts on the first day of the month of Chislev, Don't worry about when Chislev is. It's sometime in the fall, October, November, where we are right now. And then after this verse, starting in verse five, which we'll see in a minute, Nehemiah says a long prayer. And then in chapter, and that's the end of the chapter. And then in chapter two, it begins by saying on the first day of the month of Nisan. Chislev, Nisan. That's how long he prayed. What's the distance between those two dates? Not that you would know. None of us would know, but I looked it up. Four months. It's four months. Four months. Y'all know what four months of praying is? Not four months of, like, doing his job and then, like, oh, yeah, God, uh, bless the whatever. And, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, please pray for the whatchamacallums over there. Not four months of that. Four months of gut-wrenching, tear-filled, fasting, mourning, weeping kind of a prayer. Uh, Let's be honest. Like, I'm judging myself. If you asked me to pray for four hours, I couldn't do it. If you asked me to pray for four minutes, it would be a struggle to pray this kind of prayer Four minutes of this kind of prayer would be a struggle. He prayed for four months like this. What's your response? Like, we're being honest here, so don't give me a spiritual answer. What's your response when I tell you, you come to me and say, Father Anthony, we need help. Dire situation, we need help. And I spend four months praying and doing nothing. What's your response? lazy don't want to work forgot about me like come on four months of praying like praying back to the africa mission trips praying was what we said when we didn't want to do work we said oh yeah we'll be the prayer team today everyone's gonna go build stuff oh yeah someone needs to pray we'll we'll pray today that was our excuse if we want to sit on our fat butts and do nothing nehemiah for four months i told you we're in desperate need you sat on your fat butt for four months did nothing crying, praying, weeping, pick up a hammer and come help someone out. Yeah, say a prayer, two prayers, three. Like, okay, pray a week is more than enough a prayer. Like, who prays for a week? He prayed for four months. You want to know why Nehemiah prayed for four months? By the way, the idea that Nehemiah was lazy, as we'll see in a little bit, Nehemiah was far from lazy. Nehemiah was the most productive person on the planet because we're going to see what Nehemiah accomplishes. Building the walls around the city. He accomplished it in 52 days. Less than two months it takes him to do a major, major feat. So we can't say Nehemiah was not productive or he was lazy or he just wanted to be the prayer team or something like that. Nehemiah prayed for four months because he understood a key principle. And this is our key thought for today. He understood Psalm 127 verse 1. Read this verse with me. Psalm 127 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Now say it again like you mean it. Unless... We're gonna play a little game today with this verse. By the end of today, you're not only gonna memorize this verse and its reference, you're gonna be so sick of this verse and of me for giving you this verse, because we're gonna repeat it a hundred times. Here's what we're gonna do. Every time, let's do this, like pretend like this. This is the slide ahead. Every time you see a little icon at the top of the screen of our one brick logo, you see it appear, you say Psalm 127, verse 1. Okay? play that game we can do that so here i am i'm saying nothing about nothing as usual i'm just chatting away and i'm saying nothing that you're just going to sleep and then all of a sudden you see this and you say unless you guys say it more like you mean it nothing 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 blah 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 unless the lord builds the house its builders labor in vain you're gonna see that up there many times don't fall asleep on me today because i need your help today let's talk about the verse What this verse means, unless the Lord builds a house, it's builders' labor in vain. means that prayer is not something we do as like our last resort. Prayer is our primary option. Prayer is not the fire extinguisher, only used in case of emergency, as so many times we treat it. Only when everything, like even think of some of the language that we say, oh, I got no other hope right now. All I can do is pray. All I can do is pray. That's the most powerful thing. Prayer is the most powerful weapon. If we're going to go build a kingdom... Your number one tool belt that you think in your tool belt you need is you need something called prayer. Because unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor in vain. Be honest. Honest. Which is harder? To work or to pray? Pray 100%. Pray 100%. And yes, I agree. There's probably a select few group of people, okay, who is the opposite. There's some people who they pray too much and do too little work. I agree, there's some people, I'm not one of those people and I do not think the majority of us are those people. We are Northern Virginia, DC metro area, uber productive, type A kind of people. And when there's a project, we attack it head on. We have our spreadsheets, we have our Microsoft project, we have deadlines, we see that and we say, oh yeah, good luck prayer one, two, three, and then we attack. And I'm telling you, from my personal experience, To spend five minutes in sincere, heartfelt, gut-wrenching prayer is more difficult than to spend one hour preparing this message. One hour preparing notes, easier than five minutes spent praying. Going, there's a problem, there's a problem. Going, driving to whatever, driving to Baltimore to go visit somebody and spend an hour with them to talk about their problem is 100 times easier than spending 15 minutes in concentrated, dedicated prayer for them. Why? Because we like productive things. I like at the end of my day to hang something on my wall to say, I was productive today. Prayer is the most unproductive, yet most productive thing that you'll ever do in your day. And that's why we struggle with prayer. I got a quote here for you. From someone named A.E. McAdam. I have no idea who this is, but my wife now puts this at the bottom of her email. So if you get an email from my wife, you have to see this thing in big, huge font, okay, as her little signature email. It says, no praying man or woman accomplishes so much with so little expenditure of time as when he or she is praying. No man or woman accomplishes so much with so little expenditure of time as when we spend that time in prayer. I told you Nehemiah spent how long in prayer? Four months. I told you he worked for how long to accomplish his goal? 52 days. Two months. He spent four months praying for a two-month job. We're the opposite. We spend 10 minutes praying and we've been working for years. Nehemiah built walls around 52 months? You know how long two months is to build? It takes him longer to fill potholes in DC than it took Nehemiah to build a wall around the entire city with all his technology and our all technology. Because we spent all our time working. Very little time praying. And that's not the way it is. You know why? <laughs> Somebody's awake. No, again, altogether. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Work all day, work all night. If God is not working with us, then we are spinning our wheels at best, and we're wasting my time and your time. We're going to look at Nehemiah's prayer today and we're gonna see how we can pray like Nehemiah. And we now know that we need to pray like Nehemiah, but now what I'm gonna spend the rest of my time is how to pray like Nehemiah. Because if you see, we're gonna look at one prayer. In the book of Nehemiah, it's 13 chapters I believe. Nine times in 13 chapters it says Nehemiah prayed, and it shows his prayer. His best prayer is the one he says at the very beginning, and we're gonna use that as a model. Not saying that all prayer has to be like this, but I'm saying I always feel in life a general rule of life. If you wanna be successful at something, Find someone who is successful and do what he does. So I found somebody who did an amazing feat in building the kingdom of God by praying. I want to copy his way of praying until I learn how to do it myself. We're going to look at his prayer from Nehemiah chapter 1. And we are going to use it as a model for us. And I'm going to tell you right up front what you should be thinking as we read this next prayer. People in the Bible, when they prayed good prayers, meaningful prayers, didn't just make requests of God but they answered a key question to God, even though God knows all the answers. The question is, why should God give me this? People don't just come and say, God, give us this. They not only requested, but they told God why he should give it to them. And this makes sense logically. Children, a child, okay, when we were kids, you go to your parents and you say, can I have 20 bucks? And they might say, no, you don't just walk away. You'd say, no, 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 father of mine, Oh, beloved Father, whom I love and adore with all my heart. Okay? You would say, Thou hast given me so many great things. Would you please give me $20 so that I may enjoy my time in a nice, productive, whatever. You make a case out of it. Now, you don't just say, I want a car. And if he says no, you go away. There's a little back and forth. You explain why you should have a car and what good it is to the entire family that you have a car. You, there's a little. It's a relationship. Same thing with God just come to God and say give me this give me this because I, why because I really 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 want it no watch how Nehemiah does it all right we're gonna read the whole prayer and then we're gonna break it down after we read it and I said I pray Lord God of heaven oh great and awesome God you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant "...which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against, you, corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I prayed, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me, I will keep my commandments." If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you are cast to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. Let your servant prosper this day, I pray. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. How's that compared to, please God bless my day, Amen. How's that compared to our, yeah, please God let us get the building so we can have a place to park on Sundays. Nehemiah gives us four secrets of kingdom-building prayer. We're going to jump right in to number one. Number one, as I base my request on God's character, I base my request. I start my starting point is not what I need but who you are. What does Nehemiah say? He said it this way. This is his first, first sentence of his prayer. I pray, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. We always begin prayer by establishing who it is we are praying to. Like I'm gonna make a request. But before I make the request, who am I requesting of? Think about it, you're going to ask for a sandwich. Who you're asking of makes a difference. If I'm going to a homeless person asking for a sandwich, I'll have less confidence than if I'm going to a baker. Right? If I'm going and I need 10 bucks, if I'm going to a two-year-old who doesn't have any money versus if I'm going to Daddy Warbucks, it makes a difference. So before I come with my request, I adjust myself. And I say, hey, wait a minute, who am I asking? Not I'm telling God, hey, God, don't forget you're a nice guy. No, God knows he's a nice guy. I'm not telling him that he's great and awesome. I'm reminding myself that he is great and awesome. I'm setting the perspective and saying the person that I'm going in front of right now, he's a great God. He's an awesome God. He's a faithful God. And if he says something, he follows through on it. This is one of the reasons why. I believe. It is very important. Like, y'all have seen this book before? Hopefully everyone has seen this book. Okay, this book is called the Book of Hours. Okay, or or the word in the Coptic is called the Egbeia, which literally means Book of Hours. Okay? Book of Hours is given to us by the church that throughout our day, it can give us like prayers throughout the day to say. And it gives us, there's some uh, prayers from the Psalms, some passages from the Gospel. It's all based on, on passages of Scripture. But what it does is, The majority of it is is doing exactly this, is lifting our eyes up to God. That's why the Psalms are the best. That's why this is the best to begin prayer with, to lift our eyes onto God. And to say, who is it that we're asking this of? We're not asking this prayer of somebody who is weak or like we're asking this prayer of a God. One of my favorite parts of it is the ninth hour prayer. And in the ninth hour, all the Psalms are praising God for his greatness and the gospel passage in that hour is the feeding of the five loaves and two fish. Why I love that one, and I always tell people this is a great one to pray in the middle of your day, five, ten minutes, because it reminds me that the person that I'm asking this for, who is that person? That's the person who took five pieces of bread and two pieces of fish and fed multitudes with so much spilling over that they had to get extra baskets to collect it. So my point is, when I come to God with my problem, God's like, yeah, been there, done that before. Like, you're not the first person who showed up with a problem in life. You're not the first person who showed up with something that seemed impossible, and then God came through. When we start off with the Psalms, we start off by acknowledging who God is, by reminding ourselves that He is a great God, an awesome God, a faithful God. Now I'm in the right mindset to go into prayer in the right way. And that's important because... It's important because unless the Lord builds the house... It's builders' labor in vain. It's important to remind myself that I'm not going into this to build a house for God. I can't. I'm going into this to ask God to build a house. You part of the Red Sea? Yep. You fed the five loaves, to fish? Yep. The blind? The sick? Yep. Let's do the house. And now I'm ready to make my request in prayer. But before I make my request in prayer, before I get to the details, I acknowledge who God is. Second thing I do is acknowledge who I am. And I have to confess my sin. Because as soon as I see God as almighty, all holy, all pure, all everything, and I'm about to come in with give me this, no, no, no. This is on hold right now. Because now I see who he is and I have to acknowledge who I am. And this is the part of prayer that I bet you we skip the most. And I'll be honest, if God is not answering our prayers, the primary reason is because we skip number two. We don't acknowledge who we are by confessing our sin. Look what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah, who is better than me and you combined. Look what Nehemiah says. After he acknowledged who God is. He says, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. What in the world is Nehemiah talking about? What Nehemiah is talking about, go look through the Old Testament, the prophets. Every one of the prophets told the people the same thing before they went into captivity. If you all continue to disobey, you will lose your city, your temple will be destroyed, and you will be cast out to the farthest parts of the earth. And they didn't believe, and they didn't act on it, and every word came true. They disobeyed, and they were sent away into captivity. And all through the Old Testament, they said, if this, if you do this, this is going to happen. So Nehemiah is confessing his own sin, but also as a true man of God, he's confessing the sins of the people. You say, why is he confessing the sins of his fathers? Because we, as, as, as children of God, we're a family. And even beyond children, as, like I'm saying men, but really anyone who's in a position of leadership, we as men of God, we never, am I my brother, we never say, am I my brother's keeper? We never say that. Yes, I'm my brother's keeper. And yes, we have a responsibility to one another as well. So what Nehemiah is saying is that we, God, as a people, we have failed you. Yes, we have an individual relationship with God. But we have a corporate relationship with God as well. Nehemiah says, we have failed you, God. We have sinned against you. We have acted in a poor way. Why is this important? Why do they have to confess? Like, let's say the people didn't confess and didn't repent, and God gave them back their land. What would happen next? So God said, if you disobey, you're going to lose your land. And then let's say they don't confess, they don't repent, and then God just gives them the land. What would happen? they keep on sinning. What happens the next time that God says, don't do this? they say, well, we did that time. There's no consequences. We are more powerful than God. And that would make God, here's a bad word that you say when it comes to God, and I'll say it, but I don't mean it. I'm just saying it. That would make God a liar. If God gave them the land without them repenting and confessing, that would make them, that would make God a liar. And God forbid that God would be a liar. STSA, here, Arlington, build your kingdom. We want God to build build his kingdom here. We all agree on that. How is he going to build his kingdom? Fundraising? planning, strategizing, all of that is worth this much. I'm not saying don't do it. All that stuff is very important. You know how God's going to build his kingdom? When we as people humble ourselves and we confess our sins. And some of us, we need to spend some time in prayer, confessing our sins in front of God, humbling ourselves, and saying, God, we have sinned. And some of us, need to go to the sacrament of confession as well and take that step formally as well. Because I'm telling you, God doesn't care about the building as much as he cares about the builder. And God is not, this building is not gonna be built on bricks and mortar alone. It's gonna be built on repentance. It's gonna be built on hearts of purity. It's gonna be on hearts that say, God, we don't want this building to be built on gossip or on impurity or on backbiting or on hatred Or on judging. We don't want it to be built on that. So God, we confess our sins. And we are sorry, sorry, sorry. And we, Lord, even though we look nice on the outside, we don't really pray. And we're sorry. We confess. We don't really love. We say we love. We don't really love. We judge. We judge. We judge. We judge. We judge so much. We say love. We judge. We don't give. We tell other people they should give. And then when it comes time for us to give, put our money where our mouth is, we have excuse every single week. We don't give, Lord. We're not kind. We confess. I'm talking at two levels now. I'm talking about at the church. I'm talking about at a personal level as well. That if God is not answering your prayers and God is not building his kingdom in your life and doing great things, you need to examine step number two because I guarantee you this is a step where we all fall short and we gloss over this step. God cannot build a house on sin. God cannot build a house on disobedience. God cannot bring them back and say, okay, you guys disobeyed. That's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. Okay, let's just build a house anyway. God's house cannot be built on sin. And this house here cannot be built on on it either. That's not saying that we're perfect people. We all know that we're imperfect. That's why we need to confess. That's why we need to be honest and not gloss over our sins. Because you and I both know that unless... Uh, That was a, we were getting better, but that's still kind of weak. I need more energy on the next time, all right? Unless the Lord builds the house, it's builder's labor in vain. This isn't about our planning, our strategizing. This is about our character and our spirits. That's where the kingdom of God will be built. Number three, we claim God's promises. We claim God's promises. We started by acknowledging his presence and who he is. And then we were about to say something, and then all of a sudden we realized, uh-oh, if he's that, then I'm this. And we backed up and we confessed who we are. Now that we've established who he is and who we are, now we can begin the discussion. You know what I like in steps one and two Two. You know when you walk in, maybe you don't, but in, in the church setting, this is, this is what happens. You walk into a, a meeting, and it's like a boardroom kind of a meeting. And you walk in, and you see who's sitting what seats. You know what I'm saying? And you see... If that seat is empty and all these three guys are sitting here, it means someone more important is about to walk in the room. And you quickly establish who's important, who's in the church setting. This is very, like, we're very formal with that kind of stuff. So you quickly walk in, you identify and who's in what seat. You know what steps one and two were? We're identifying who's in what seat. We walked into the boardroom, God is at the head, you and I are at the floor. Okay? And once we acknowledge that, because we cannot start a discussion with me coming to God, sitting in the head seat, say, come on in, God. No, no, it doesn't work. I put God, make sure his seat is reserved. I make sure my spot is over there on the floor. And then God says, okay, come on up. Sit next to me. What is your request? Then we begin the discussion. And the discussion begins by claiming God's promises. Nehemiah says this, verse 8 and 9. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah did his homework. Nehemiah didn't just show up to prayer. Nehemiah goes into the meeting and says, God, I know that we have sinned. And I know that you promised that if we sin, we're get kicked out. But I also know in section 3.4.8, uh, letter I, that you also said, that's what he's like. He's like a lawyer here. You also, I found this God, I did my homework. You promised that if we repent and we return that you will take us back to our place. Ah. As a father, nothing gets me more than when I get my kid and say, no, you can't have that, you can't have that. But dad, you said, one of those moments. All right, that's fine. If you said, and a lot of us, we get nothing from God because we have no idea what God said. That's why again, back to here, you cannot disconnect prayer from scripture. You cannot disconnect it. Prayer, that's why sometimes, would well, you read your Bible or do you pray? Or do you pray or read your Bible? It's the same act. It's the same act. Okay, the two have to be connected. The reading of the scripture, response in prayer, prayer through the scripture has to be the same, connected together. Nehemiah tells him, remember, O Lord, the word that you said. This word, remembered, is an interesting word. What does it mean when we tell God to remember his promise? And if you notice, in the prayers of the church, the word remember is used often. Remember, O Lord, your servants. Remember, O Lord, the priests and the deacons and the congregation. Remember, O Lord, this city of ours. Remember. What are we telling God Remember. remember? Like what does remember mean? Does remember mean like, like, like for us, like don't forget? The word remember, like if you take it in a literal sense, okay, because the like Hebrew words and English words don't always match like exactly. Remember literally means to take something and bring it to the front of my mind. That's what it means. Like, did you remember your wife's birthday? Uh, like, I know it's in there somewhere. Like, remember it. Bring it to the front. Whatever information is there, bring it to the front. So we tell God to remember his promise. He knows his promise. Like, He's God. He doesn't need to remember. But God likes it when we bring his promises to the forefront. And don't ask me to explain it. And don't ask me why. But I guarantee you this. Nothing pleases God more than when we, his children, say, remember your promise. Nothing. Go look at anyone who ever accomplished anything through prayer. Their prayer is always the same. Remember, O God, what you promised. For some reason, these words mean a lot to God. And these are the number one key to getting your prayer answered is reminding God, not reminding, but telling God, remember your promise. Why? Sometimes we say things about answered prayer, like you maybe have heard, you know, like, ask and you shall receive. All right, ask and you shall receive. Or whatever things you ask in prayer, uh... You know, these things will be done to you. So people are like, I can just ask for anything. No, it's not saying you ask for anything. It's saying this, James 4, 3. You ask and don't receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. When it says ask and you will receive, it's saying take the words that God has promised and ask for those words. And then you will have what you ask for. Then when you ask anything in prayer, according to what I have said, then you'll have whatever it is that you need. Not when you just say, give me this and give me that. But just say, God, you promised mercy. I need mercy. Ask and you shall receive. God, you promised that if we repent and we return to you, you will build your kingdom. He says, whatever you ask in prayer, that's yours. We're asking for a church. We're asking for that building. Why are we asking for that building? Why? Because we like mortgages. That's cool. Because we like the work of of having our own place, and we just want to like have a sign. We want a sign. That's what this is all about: having a sign. Or the the setup team is on strike. Okay, so we need a building quick, so we don't need them anymore. Something like that. Why do we want a building? Why is this building thing a big deal for us? Why are we asking for it? Easy, because God, you promised. You promised, not me. God, you promised. Remember our promise at the beginning of this new year. Who remembers our promise at the beginning of this new year? We every year, like we had a, a promise as a church together, okay, from Jeremiah twenty nine verse seven, that said that God wants to bring healing and peace to our land. Said that if we pray for our city and seek the peace of our city, God will fill us with peace. In its peace, you will have peace. Remember that Jer- Jeremiah twenty nine seven. So we're not saying God give us a building because we want a building to look cool. We're saying God, you promised to heal this city, right? We are praying for a hospital, not because we want one, but because you said you want to do healing. We're praying for a hospital so that you can work mightily because you promised that you want to work in this city. You know, if you go back to all the promises that God has given to us individually, I'll speak about myself. Speak about myself. I shared this with with the church family before. Some of you may know it not, but me personally, my promise at the beginning of the new year was this verse, Isaiah 45, verse 2 and 3. Okay, we passed out promises to everyone. Everyone got a personal promise. This is my promise. I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze, cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. I don't care what promise you got. I got the best promise in the world. This is the best promise in the world. God telling me, I'm going to go before you. You see that big mountain? Knock it down. See those gates of bronze? Cut through those things. That's the best promise in the whole world. And all year... I've been holding God to this promise, as I told you before. It's the first thing I read in the morning, last thing before I go to sleep. And every time I read this, I always understood it in a general sense. And say, like, God is promising big things. And our church is a very young church. We've only been around for two and a half years. But 2014 has been an eventful year for us in a lot of ways. Right? And God has worked. And I don't want to get into that because I could talk all day and all night about what God has done in the year 2014. And every time I'm like, yes, God is fulfilling his promise. Yes, God is doing this, and God allowed this, and God gave me this, and yes, and yes, and yes. And I took this as a generic promise. You know what I realized just last week? Is this promise was not a general promise. In my daily Bible reading, I was actually reading the passage before this. This is Isaiah chapter 45, verse 2. What's verse 1? Verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. So God is saying, I'm about to say something to a guy named Cyrus. Then he gave him that promise to level the mountains. We've heard of Cyrus before, haven't we? Who's Cyrus? So then this is Isaiah 45.1. I went back to the verse right before it, which is the last verse of Isaiah 44. And it says about Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure. He shall say to Jerusalem, You shall be built into the temple, your foundation shall be laid. To Cyrus. I make it even more clear who Cyrus. Y'all remember who Cyrus is? Ezra 1 is Cyrus. Ezra 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord came to him. And he's the one who said, Thus says the king, Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kings of the earth shall the Lord heaven has given me. He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. I don't know if I connected all the dots there for you. But let me do it here simply for you. The promise that God gave me personally. The promise that God gave me to level mountains and cut, cut bars of bronze. As you go back and trace it, that's a promise he gave to Cyrus. And it was specific to building the temple in Jerusalem. Specific, not general. It was specific. And when I read that, you know what we're trying to do here with this building? We're trying to collect $2 million. Of that $2 million, how much have we collected? A little more than zero. <laughs> About 20 grand at the last check. Last time we checked, 20 grand. And as I look at that, and I'm like, two million? 20,000. And then we go check the mailbox. And we see all the checks that are coming in. And all the checks that are coming in, there's no checks that are coming in. You know what it is? It's returned envelopes. So we put the wrong address on or something like that. And I go in the mailbox, and there's a big stack. And could not send, could not send, return to sender, return to sender. And I see two million dollars. And I see 20,000. And then I see this verse, and I say, we got this. We got this. I don't want to sound dumb. You think I'm dumb. There is zero doubt in my mind that God is going to accomplish this. And I right now, I'm laughing at myself. Because now I'm calling myself, you're the dumbest person in the world. Because you know what? By all means, I am the dumbest person in the entire universe. But I know one thing. You know what I know? I know this. Psalm 127, verse 1. Say it loud like you mean it. I know that I'm not building this building. And I know that I'm not the one who's responsible for finding the money. I'm not the one responsible for working with the cow. I'm not the one who's responsible. God made a promise. God is going to come through on it. And the coolest thing about it is as we stand here with nothing, is that we are going to get to see the promise. Too often we hear about the promise from the other end. Now we're going to see God work. And I promise you God's going to work mightily. Because I didn't start this process. It's not my ambition. I have nothing to do with this thing. God, it's yours, and you commanded me to tell the people that it'd be your will. And that's why number four makes it a lot easier. When we've done one, two, and three, coming with number four becomes a lot easier. And you now can be very specific in what you ask for when you come to God. After I know who God is, I know who I am, and then God gives me these promises, I want to do this, 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 it becomes a lot easier to ask for specific things when God has... Given me that kind of background. Nehemiah 1:10 and 11. Look what Nehemiah asked specifically. All that big prayer, all that huge words, that confession, to promises, boil down to one thing in the end, one request. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh, Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. All that was introduction. Here's the request. Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Long story short, Nehemiah was asking God to give him blessing and success when he was going to go before his boss, the king, the king who had shut down this project, and go to him and say, please, can I have a leave of absence that I can go and rebuild this? And that was a big, bold request, because if you go in front of the king, there was only two options when you made a request. Either the king said yes, or the king killed you. Those were the only two options. There was no, no, ask me later. If I like your request, I say yes. If I do not like it, I cut your head off right there on the spot. And many people did. And that's why he's saying, Lord, you are God. You are faithful. I am nothing. You promised this, so therefore do this. And Nehemiah prayed and prayed and prayed. And in the end, he gets his specific request. We're going to make specific requests as well. What's going to happen right now is you're going to see some people coming up and down these aisles. They're going to pass out to you some prayer cards. All right, and everyone take one and pass them down real quick. All right, get those things distributed as quickly as possible because what you're going to see on those prayer cards is what we are specifically praying for here as a church family. All right, we're not praying, God bless us, God give us uh, a building. What we are praying for specifically is you're going to see those on the cards as they come around. On those cards, I listed eight requests, four on the front and four on the back. What i'm asking everyone to do is take their card and every day set aside a dedicated time of prayer all right what i'm not saying is just pray in your normal prayer and just read it real quick i'm saying set aside a dedicated time and i'm telling you what i'm doing and if you join me more power to you if you can't whatever you can i'm going in the middle of my day because i think it's nice to break up in the middle of my day i'm going to this book right here This prayer book of the hours, I'm praying the ninth hour prayer. If you can skip out of work for five minutes at lunchtime, after lunch, mid-afternoon snack, come on, man, we waste more time on that on ESPN.com, more than five minutes. All right, let's take five minutes out your day, you sneak into, I know, like back when I used to work, not because I was a very spiritual person, but just because I like to skip out of work, I used to take this book right here, and I used to find a private place, I used to go under the stairwell. Okay, I used to hide under the stairwell, and I used to pray. Not because I'm very spiritual, but because people found me in the bathroom, basically. All right, so I used to go under the stairwell. That's all it takes. You keep this book in your pocket. You say some of the psalms. You pray for five minutes, and then you pull out your prayer card, and you say those requests. We're praying for the same thing specifically. We're not just praying for a building. We're praying, God, move in people's hearts to donate to this building. We're saying, God, once you've moved in their hearts, Help us to find out who those people are because there's no value that you moved in the heart of some guy in England and then he's there hidden under a rock and we can't get to him. And then, Lord, give us a chance to speak to this person and present to them the mission of it. You see all the requests right there. I don't need to go through that. When we pray with this formula, who is God? Who am I? What did he promise? What am I requesting? This formula is a formula for success. We start by saying, who is God? We then go by, who am I? What did God say? And what do I want? And that's what we are going to do. Basically, what I'm asking everybody in the end here as I finish up, I know it took my long time here today, I'm asking everybody to help build God's kingdom by doing less and praying more. I promise you, I spent years and years and years of my life working harder then i prayed. And when you work harder than you pray, I'm not saying God doesn't work. God worked. I worked hard and i prayed little and God worked in a linear fashion. God worked. And now what God is telling me is i don't need to not work hard and pray little, but i need to pray harder than i'm working and i'm telling you, when you pray harder than you work, the results are not linear, they are exponential. And that's what i'm asking everybody to do in a very personal and a very practical way is this week join together in prayer. Next week, you're going to come back and I'm going to give you different prayer cards. Every week, we're not going to pray for the same thing forever and ever. We're going to pray these prayers all week. God is going to answer because God is faithful and we're going to pray different things next week. And as this campaign goes on, we are going to build God's kingdom through prayer. Last thing, last thing, last thing, last thing, last thing. Okay. If God, I want everyone to dream big here. If if Nehemiah prayed and God built walls around the city in 52 days, God built walls around the city in 52 days, what would happen if all of us prayed fervently? Prayed Nehemiah kind of prayers. What could God do in this city? We don't need walls. City has a nice infrastructure, we don't need walls. How many lost souls who don't know God, could find him and find an eternal home, not just a home in this life, but an eternal home, an eternal significance if the people of God prayed. How many people who think they know God and they know him in a very nominal, kind of superficial way, everyone out there thinks they know God, how many of them can we introduce the true riches of our ancient Orthodox Christian faith to? And how many people could have a deep, deep, deep relationship with God? How many people are out there lonely, and trying to live life on their own. Good front on the outside, all cool at the water cooler, but inside, they got nobody. They got no God, they got nobody else, and they hate everything about their life. How many of them can we invite into part of a family, a family that lasts forever? Sometimes when I think about all the stuff that God can do, and I told you all this before, that I believe that what God does here in Arlington Is going to affect the entire country because you know that so many people are in Arlington for a year and then they go back to where they came from so many come for six months and they go back to where they came from if we change this city and we can affect this city and influence this city man it's gonna affect the whole country what could God do if his people prayed one last time I'll give it to you one last time I give you the words this time show me that you know this verse this last time all right say it all together We're gonna prove that this week. We're gonna, we're gonna put God to the test in prayer and we're gonna see how God works. Let's stand up together and say a prayer now. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you from the depth of our heart. Thank you because you really are an awesome God. You're a faithful God who truly fulfills every word, every letter that you promised, Lord. Not one thing comes to pass, hasn't come to pass that you have promised. And you have promised us, Lord, that you want to do great and mighty works here. Lord, whether we get this building today, tomorrow, next year, 50 years from now, Lord, we don't care about a building. We care, Lord, about building your kingdom. And we thank you that you've given us an opportunity to be kingdom builders. We pray, Lord, that, that you can help us to pray, help us to, to, to do less and pray more, to, to put you in the spotlight, and us in the, in, the, in the back, in the shadows to let you shine, Lord, and let you do what you came to do and what you desire to do, which is to build your kingdom here. Lord, build your kingdom in all of our hearts. Build your kingdom in every city that's represented here. The people who are just visiting from out of town, Lord, build your kingdom in their city just as much as here. Do a mighty work, Lord, a work that's befitting of how great you are and how beautiful you are. Accept our prayers this day in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the prayers and intercessions of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. But deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you all very much. Have a great week, guys.